This is the New York Sports Minute with your host, Morgan Eck. All right, what's up, everyone? Welcome to the New York Sports Minute podcast. It is Friday, January 13th, and man, I am excited for this weekend. Um, I don't know about you guys, but this week just feels longer than most. Um, I don't know if it's the holidays or last week was a four-day work week, but just something about this week has felt kind of extra long, and I I find myself limping towards this weekend, but I'm pretty pumped. Um, Actually, I'm very pumped for this weekend because for the first time since 2016, New York City has playoff football back. And we have the Giants playing the Vikings in the first round of the NFL playoffs on Sunday. And I am very excited to see what the Giants can do up in Minnesota. So with that, this is the first episode of the Sports Minute. We have a jam-packed podcast. Um, First, what I'm going to do is walk you through who I am and why I'm doing this podcast. Second, we'll go through the Giants. I'll give my take, my perspective, and I'll even answer a few of the voicemails that a few listeners have left asking about the Giants. I'll then transition to the other big piece of news in New York City, which is the Mets and Carlos Correa. The deal is off. Steve Cohen walks away from the table from Carlos Correa, and I'll talk about what that really means for the Mets moving forward. And then I'll end with a couple more New York City uh, voicemails that you guys left and, and give my final thoughts heading into the weekend. So with that, let's jump right in. Hey, taxi. So first, I want to just address who I am and, and why I'm building this podcast. So... At a high level, I'm a New Yorker. Um, I live in the Upper West Side. I work a classic corporate job. I live on the 2-3, going to work and coming home every single day. And I really deal with the same adversities that every New Yorker deals with, which is paying $16 for cocktails or avoiding and hurdling the crazy homeless people in Penn Station every morning. And I get what it means to be a New Yorker. I get all the emotions that goes into living into the city. And... Beyond that, I'm a diehard New York sports fan, and I have been really since I was a kid. Um, You know, the best way for me to describe how big of a fan I am is, you know, the best moment of my childhood was in 2006 when the Mets were playing the Cardinals in the NLCS, and Andy Chavez made arguably the best catch in baseball history, jumping over the Shea Stadium wall, robbing a home run from Scott Rowland, and seemingly saving the game for the Mets. Then... I think about one of the worst moments of my childhood was just 20 minutes later when the Mets lost that game to the Cardinals, and it was mainly due to Adam Wainwright striking out Carlos Beltran with two outs uh, in the bottom of the ninth. So, you know, New York sports have always been in my blood, and not only do I understand what it means to be a New Yorker, but I understand what it means to be a diehard New York sports fan. And, you know, the reason I'm building this show is, you know, like many of you, I love listening to sports talk radio, and I still do. Um, WFAN was really kind of the soundtrack to my childhood and listening to personalities like Boomer Esiason, Craig Carton, Evan Roberts, Joe Beningo. But what I found as I got older was life just got too busy for me to tune in. Um, between work and everything else that goes on to in life, I just found it really hard for me to tune in for a few hours listening to live radio. And so I switched to podcasts, which is seemingly what everyone's done. And while there are some good podcasts out there, you know, I find that there isn't really a classic New York sports podcast. I find a lot of the content is really for one team and it's way too technical. It's way too seasonal. And there isn't that one place for me to go to find my New York sports content. And so that's really what this show is going to be all about. Um, The New York sports minute is bringing classic New York sports radio to the podcast world. 
And so what I'm going to be doing every Friday is releasing one episode, talking through the main topics, games, drama of New York sports. I'll be giving my take and my perspective on everything, but I'll also be including voicemails that you can you guys can drop every week by clicking on that link in my uh, in my Spotify page there. And then eventually we'll start bringing in interviews of players and coaches and media and anyone else that wants to give a perspective on New York sports. And so that's who I am and why I'm starting the show. And I'm really excited to be dropping my first episode today because it feels like the game on Sunday is one of the biggest games New York City has seen in a long time with the Giants taking on the Vikings on Sunday at 4.30 in the NFL playoffs. And so that's where I want to start today. Um, I'll then transition transition into some other topics as well, but I really want to spend the bulk of today talking about why you know I'm so excited about this game on Sunday. Blue 22 punch! So before we get into the actual game, I want to take a step back, right? And I want to talk about how Giants fans and the Giants got here, right? Because not to remind anyone, but the last six years of being a Giants fan has been a total dumpster fire. Like, the last time we made the playoffs was 2016. And since then, here's our records. 2017, we went 3-13. and 13. 2018, we went 5-11. and 11. 2019, we went 4-12. and 12. 2020, we went 6-10. and 10. 2021, we went 4-13. and 13. And in that span, we had three coaches with Ben McAdoo, Pat Shermer, and Joe Judge, none of which was none of which lasted two years as a head coach. And so I don't know about you guys, but heading into the season, I had zero optimism. I thought there was no chance we were going to have a winning record, let alone make the playoffs. And I thought the season was going to be over by Thanksgiving, um, like it has been for the last, you know, five or six years. But in reality, that all changed when we hired Brian Dable as our head coach. Um you know, I didn't realize it at the time, but hiring Brian Dable was going to be the thing that totally saved this franchise. And so looking back at it, you know, Brian Dable has basically had the same roster that we've had for the past couple seasons. He added a couple nice young pieces through the draft, but overall he's turned this team from four and 13 to nine, seven and one. And this is the second time in the last decade that we've won nine games and it comes in Dable's first year as head coach. And so when I think about the season, which had its ups and downs, I thought about like what were the three things that Brian Dable did that turned this team from a four-win team to a nine-win team. And looking at it, you know, the first thing that stands out to me is turnovers. This year, the Giants were second best in the league in protecting the football with only 16 turnovers. Last year, we were dead last with 30. Last year, we were the worst team at protecting the football, whereas this year, we are now second best. That isn't talent. That is all coaching and all of Brian Dable and what his staff were able to do with this with this roster. The second thing that I thought about was what else did we do differently is we got back to Giants football and we started running the damn ball. Um, this year, the Giants were fourth in the league with rushing yards with 2,519. 1,300 of those came from Saquon Barkley, who had a career year. And 700 of those came from Daniel Jones with a career high. Last year, we were 24th in the league with nearly 1,000 yards rushing less. And the third thing to me that stands out to why this year was so different is really defensive consistency. Now, you can look at a lot of different things and point to a better defense, but to me, the stat that I looked at that kind of illuminates why the season was different was the Giants' ability to get off the field on third down. This year, the Giants were fifth in the league at getting off the field on third down, meaning the opponents only got off the, or were able to convert their third down 35% of the time. Last year, we were 17th. And so, really, those are the three things. We started protecting the football, we started running the ball, and we were able to get off the field on third down. 
And those were the things that kind of converted us from a four win team to a nine win team. And as a Giants fan, you should really be really excited because a lot of those things have nothing to do with talent. It has a lot more to do with coaching and discipline. So what can we then expect playing against the, the Vikings on Sunday at 430? Well, what's really nice when you think about this game and when you think about breakdowns and prediction is we have a comparison. Um, we played the Vikings just three weeks ago on Christmas Eve in Minnesota. And in that game, we lost 27 to 24. Um, as you guys can remember, it was a great back and forth game. Saquon Barkley had that touchdown late and then the two point conversion to Daniel Bellinger tied the game. The Vikings got the ball with about a minute left. It looked like we were going to force overtime, but then Justin Jefferson made a huge play. And then their kicker, Greg Joseph, hit a franchise record 61 yard field goal as time expired to win the game. So what? Whatever. We lost on the road on Christmas Eve on a record field goal attempt. It happens. And so that's why, one, I have a lot of optimism going into this week because we know we can go into Minnesota and put up a dogfight. Um, you know, some of the things that stood out to me in that game was Daniel Jones balled out. He threw for 334 yards and a touchdown. He had a bad pick, but overall, Daniel Jones basically had his way against that Viking secondary. The things that stood out to me on the other side were we weren't able to stop the air attack at all. Cousins had 300 yards and three scores. 133 of those yards went to Justin Jefferson with a touchdown. And we were also missing two key defensive players with our number one cornerback, Adoree Jackson, not playing with a knee injury and our starting safety, Xavier McKinney, who hurt his dang uh, hand in an ATV accident in Mexico just a few weeks earlier. And I'm pretty glad that I didn't have a podcast back then because I was losing my mind when I saw the news that our all pro safety was out because of a big uh, ATV incident. But that's neither here nor there. So, but losing those two guys had a massive impact on that game. Right. And so, I think this game is going to be super tight. I think it's going to be back and forth again. But to me, it ultimately comes down to a couple things. First, in the same way we got here, we have to win the turnover battle. You know, back on Christmas Eve, we had two turnovers. We had the Bellinger fumble. We had the Daniel Jones interception. And the Vikings had zero. This team is not capable of winning games when it loses turnover battles to zero. And so we are going to have to protect the football. That not only means Daniel Jones, but it also means all of our playmakers cannot put the ball on the ground. So that's number one. Number two is Adoree Jackson and McKinney, assuming they're both healthy, looks like they will be, have to find a way to slow down Justin Jefferson. Now, I'm not saying they have to shut out JJ. Um, I think that's nearly impossible, and no one has really done that all year. But we have to find a way for him to have less than 100 yards. The Vikings are a 500 team when he has less than 100 yards. And in fact, every single game they lost but once this year was because Jefferson had less than the century mark. And so Adoree Jackson, McKinney, Wink Martindale have to figure out a plan to just basically make Kirk Cousins throw to anyone but Justin Jefferson. And then the third piece, and by far and away, to me, the biggest X factor is our ability to get after Kirk Cousins. The Vikings have given up the eighth most sacks this year with 47. Our pass rush has been coming on very strong with guys like Kayvon Thibodeau, second year player Aziz Ojolari. We have a lot of good pass rushers right now who are able to get off the court, get after the quarterback. And I think against the Vikings weak offensive line, against an offensive line that is missing their starting and backup center, against an offensive line that is missing their right tackle, um, the game is going to be won based on if we can put on pressure on Kirk Cousins. And so with that, I do think the Giants win this game. In fact, I'm pretty confident they win this game. I think the Giants are going to win by a touchdown. Give me 27 to 20 with a really good game from Daniel Jones. Um, but that's my take. That's my perspective. Let's now get into the voicemails and see what you guys have to say about the game and, and what some of your questions are. 
Hey, Morgan. This is the Bob Man calling in from sunny Palm Beach, Florida. With one question for you regarding the playoff-bound New York Giants. Can Kenny Galladay be the X Factor we're just so desperately needing on offense to propel us towards a Super Bowl win? All right. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate you calling in, man. Um, do I think Kenny Galladay has a role in this playoff game? Uh, how do I say this delicately? Absolutely not. <laughs> Listen, I think Kenny's probably a good dude. I think overall he's handled the situation in New York pretty well. This has not gone the way he wanted to. Um, but Kenny Galladay hasn't gotten separation since like 2018. I mean, even on his touchdown on the Eagles, which was a beautiful catch, he had zero separation on the corner. Um, he was draped all over him and he made just an awesome catch. But I just have yet to see Kenny Galladay get one inch of separation since he's been here. And I just don't see Brian Dable not giving him any playing time all year to then give him a ton of playing time against the Vikings. Now, listen, if he goes out and catches two touchdowns for 100 yards, I'll be the first one to start clapping for him because I think he's a good dude. I'm sure he is a good dude. But I just don't see how a guy who's had a really ineffective couple years here is all of a sudden going to be a starting wide receiver against the Vikings when other guys like Isaiah Hodgins have been playing a lot better. Thanks for the call, though, Bob. Let's go to the next question. Let's go to Ryan. What do you got for me, Ryan? Hey, Morgan. It's Ryan from Kinlaw, New Jersey. Congratulations on the new show. And I want to take this time to share some thoughts on Brian Dable. I mean, overall, I think what he's done this season has been absolutely remarkable. Um, looking at where we were this time last year under Joe Judge, um, a roster comprised of mostly players who are miserable, running QB sneaks on third down. The turnaround has been absolutely amazing, and I think Dable is should be the favorite for coach of the year. Um, he's got Daniel Jones playing the best football of his career with a wide receiving core that is probably bottom five in the league in terms of talent on paper. Um, the guys really seem to want to be here and want to play for him. Um, it just seems fun to play for the Giants again, and I don't think it's been a long time since we can say that. And even yesterday, um, we had the second string guys out there, and they seemed very cohesive and just competing at a level that um, was just impressive in a game that meant nothing. So, yeah, just super bullish about the save of the franchise, Dable especially. Um, so my question for you is how are you thinking about this team in the near and long term, and what do you want to see from the team this week? Yeah, first off, appreciate your analysis, man. Um, a lot of questions there. What I picked out was you know, what I'm excited about the Vikings and overall what am I excited about moving forward. Kind of the same thing. Um, I'm most excited about what this pass rush can do. I, I'm really excited about what Thibodeau, Dexter Lawrence, and Ojolari can do. Like I said, Garrett Bradbury is a Vikings starting center. He's out for this game. He got in a car accident, um, which he is all right from, but he got in a car accident a couple weeks ago, and he has an injury that it looks like he's probably not going to return this week. His backup, Austin Schlotman, got injured last week, or sorry, two weeks ago against the Packers leaving their third string center, uh, Chris Reed, to get the start. And he's going to have to go against the best nose tackle in the NFL, voted by his players, Dexter Lawrence. Um, and also their right tackle, Brian O'Neill's out. And so I'm just really excited about what Ojolari, Thibodeau, Dexter Lawrence, Leonard Williams, what all these defensive line playmakers are going to do against this offensive line. Like, to me, 
it feels like those guys could have a game similar to what we saw in previous playoff runs in 2007, 2011, with guys like you know Jason Pierre-Paul, Justin Tuck, OCU Minora, uh, Michael Strahan. Even I think you know if we can generate a pass rush like we have in the past, we can beat anyone, um, and I think that could happen on the Vikings. Similarly, what am I so excited about in the future, and what do we need in the future? I, I think we just need more playmakers. I think we need to stop talking about Daniel Jones, and we need to find more guys who can just make plays. Like we saw with Kayvon Thibodeau, um, the dude makes plays on his own. Like he won the game against Baltimore by causing that strip sack on Lamar Jackson. He basically won the game on his own against the Commanders um, by that strip sack recovery and touchdown uh, against Taylor Heineke. So we just need more guys like that, and I, I think Joe Shane and Brian Dable are going to find him. But thanks for the call, Ryan. Um, let's go to Jack. Let's see what you got, Jack. Hey, this is Jack from Bergen County. First time, long time. A uh, huge fan of the show. Um, you know, my question for you today is about the Giants, uh, specifically about the quarterback position. Um, you know, Daniel Jones took a step this year, cut down the mistakes. He has a playoff football team on his hands. But I would love to know, looking at next year, you know, what's your opinion on what the Giants should do at quarterback? You know, should they sign Jones to a two-year deal, probably team-friendly? Or would you have them go into free agency, look for a Lamar or a Jimmy G type? Or, you know, probably way more hypothetical, um, you know, do they try to get one of these three quarterbacks uh, in this draft by moving up, um, you know, through trading picks? Uh, you know, Bryce Young's probably out of the picture, but, you know, if Will Levis or uh, C.J. Stroud start to fall, you know, could you see that as an option? Or, you know, do you, you, know, do you go with the Daniel Jones two-year deal, you know, and you draft best available this class, best available in free agency, and then try to plug and play a quarterback down the road, you know, like maybe – Caleb Williams gets hurt next year and falls in the draft. Uh, love to get your thoughts. Thanks. Am I taking Daniel Jones as a quarterback next year? Now, I know this question isn't about the Vikings, but I do want to just address it because you can't really start a New York sports podcast without talking about the quarterback, I guess. But absolutely, I'm taking Daniel Jones next year. I don't even think this is a question. Now, if you'd asked me back in August, I would have said, wait till January. But now I'm here in January. The dude won nine games. He played fantastic football this year. In fact, Daniel Jones only had five interceptions this year, which is the least amount of least amount of any quarterback who's played 16-plus games. The dude was the best quarterback in the league at protecting the football, and that was a total change from what we saw from him or his rookie in his second year. The, the other thing I love about Daniel Jones that I think we have to continue to lean in on is, you know, he was top five in the league in, uh, in quarterback rushing yards with 700-plus 700, 700 yards. The only other, only other guys to eclipse 700 rushing yards this year were Josh Allen, Jalen Hurts, Lamar Jackson, and Justin Fields. That's two MVP candidates, a previous MVP, and probably a future MVP. I just think the way Daniel Jones has handled the adversity of this city, the way he's handled the adversity of multiple head coaches, multiple different offenses, a lot of losing seasons, the way he's shown his leadership qualities and played phenomenal football this year, I think it's, you have no question but to bring him back. Um, you know, I saw Boomer Esiason on the fan on Monday actually made a comment that the Giants and Jones are close to an extension, and I'm hoping they announce that as soon as possible. I, I My guess is he signs a four-year deal. My guess is in the Tannehill to Goff money, which would be like four-year, 120 to 130 million. My guess is both he and the Giants probably want a lot of that guaranteed money up front in the first couple of years, so... Either the Giants can cut him loose after those couple years, but it also makes sense for Jones. Like, cause he's still going to be young after that four-year deal, and we'll have the opportunity to sign an even bigger contract. So, 
my guess is they signed him to a four-year deal, and I, I really hope they do because he's just been awesome this year and, and really awesome the last couple of years handling everything that is New York. But thanks for the question, Jack. Let's go to Todd in Jersey. What's up, Todd? Hi. I wanted to know if you think the Giants should keep Saquon Barkley and Daniel Jones or if you think they should move on from them. Let me know your thoughts on what you want them to do for next year. Yeah, I I already addressed the Jones thing. I appreciate the call, Todd. I I do want to touch on Saquon. I think Saquon's been one of the best New York athletes I've seen in a long time in the sense of handling the pressure, handling the media, being accountable, but also playing at a super high level. Um, You know, he's been an awesome New York City athlete. The, The challenge with Barkley is this is his fifth season with the Giants. He's already undergone massive knee surgery back in 2020. This year, he had a career high in touches with 295, albeit he did have 1,300 yards and 10 touchdowns. I mean, he's an awesome running back. I love Saquon Barkley. I think he's probably the unanimous everyone's favorite player on the team, and I love the guy, and I would love to see him come back. I just think if you're paying Daniel Jones, there's no way you can also give Saquon Barkley a four-year deal. And when I look at what other players have gotten, you know, Christian McCaffrey, four-year, $64 million deal. Alvin Kamara, five years, $75 million deal. Zeke Elliott, six-year, $90 million deal. $90 million deal. Like, I just don't know if if Joe Shane is going to give out two four-year contracts to both Jones and Barkley. And so my guess is he locks up Jones to a four-year deal, and then my guess is he gives out the franchise tag, Todd, to, to Saquon Barkley because the franchise tag for running back is not bad. It's about It's projected to be $10 million next year. And then I think at that point you had six great years of Saquon. Listen, if, if he's willing to come back on a team-friendly deal, great. But if not, you know, I think you have to wish him all the best. But you never know. I mean, they might go the other way around. They might bring Saquon back. But my guess is they probably tag him and give Daniel Jones the extension. But thanks for the call, Todd. Let's take one more. Let's go to Big Beast. Hey, what's up, Morgan? This is Big Beast calling in from Hartford County. I got a question for you. People are getting thirsty in New York. Which New York-based team do you think is in the biggest need of a championship title? <laughs> thanks, for the, thanks for the call, Big Beast. Hope you call again. Um, who's most due for a New York City championship? Man, this is tough. I think any fan base would say it's them because we haven't had a title here in a while. Um, when I think about the teams who are probably most due for a title here, there are two that really stand out to me. The first is obviously the Knicks. The Knicks haven't won since 1973, and believe it or not, I think are the most popular team in the city. The challenge with the Knicks, though, is they're just not close to a title. I love Jalen Brunson, and we're going to talk a lot about what Brunson, Barrett, and Randall are doing in future episodes, but I just, as starving as that franchise is, I think they're just kind of stuck in misery right now until we figure things out. And so the team that I think is most due for a championship, a team that I think is probably also closest to a championship, a team that I think would reinvigorate the city in a different way, to me is the New York Mets. Um, You know, the Mets haven't won since 1986. In that time, they've been to two World Series, both in 2000 and 2015. And in reality, like the team hasn't been good outside of those couple years. Last year, they had a good year, but they were bounced early by the Padres. And with Cohen buying them, with him bringing in stars like Verlander, like Scherzer, like Lindor, like Alonzo, I just think there's so much pressure on this team. And I think the fan base in the city would just explode when they finally break through because there's just been such a negative connotation about them for so long. So 
I think it's the Mets. I think the Mets do actually find a championship in the next couple of years here. Um, but the Mets are in the news right now for not winning games. Um, for those who didn't see, the Mets are in the news right now because they originally signed all-star third baseman Carlos Correa to a 12-year, $315 million contract back in December. Kind of came out of nowhere. It brought the Mets payroll to just uncharted territories. Um, but the deal never got finalized. And all of a sudden, two weeks went by, and there wasn't a final you know, analysis of the deal. And all of a sudden, it comes out on Christmas Eve that the Mets were concerned about the physical of Carlos Correa. And in fact, that was actually the reasons the San Francisco Giants had walked away from Correa just a couple weeks earlier, because they were concerned about his physical. And it came out that Cohen and the team doctors were not excited about what they were seeing with Carlos Correa. For those who weren't following the story, basically Carlos Correa had a metal plate in his right leg and that was starting to cause him a little bit of issue. And team doctors were worried about not necessarily getting hurt next year or the year after, but they were concerned about giving him a 13-year deal. And so the Mets ultimately walked away from this deal. Um, the Mets offered him, I think it was like six years, $150 million or something, and the Twins offered him six years, $200 million, and so he went back with the Twins. Listen, am I bummed that Carlos Correa isn't a Met? Absolutely I'm bummed. I thought he was going to be the piece that got this team over the top. I thought him, along with his Puerto Rican countrymen, Francisco Lindor, were going to be the best left side of the infield in the league. I thought him playing behind Lindor and Alonzo and McNeil in the batting lineup would have just given us an insanely potent offense. I thought he was the perfect fit. But listen, at the end of the day, Steve Cohen made a profit of, I think it was $1.3 billion. Um, sorry, it was $1.7 billion in his financial endeavors last year alone. $1.7 billion in, last, in, in 2022. He, he did that not because of giving out foolish contracts, both in his, his work and in the Mets. He did that because he knew when to take risks and, and when not to. And what I like about Cohen is he's going to spend a lot of money, but he's not going to do so in a reckless way. And so, obviously, the doctors that he pays a ton of money flag something to Steve Cohen to say, hey, this guy is not healthy. And I, as a fan, I would much rather my team do the right thing and not have the contract for 13 years than all of a sudden, in two years from now, it comes out that Carlos Correa is constantly hurt, he stops playing, and we have a contract that's an albatross, and he still has like eight years left, and he's not going to play. And so, yeah, it sucks. I really want Correa on this team, but... You know, I am happy that the Mets walked away. And ultimately, I mean, like when you think about these things, one, you know, we know that Cohen is going to spend money. Like Correa obviously was the prize jewel here, and there aren't any other free agents out there that he can go sign. But he, this is just showing to us that he's committed to this team. And I'm sure they're looking into the trade market right now thinking, who are the players that we can bring on and we'll absorb their contract? Or I'm sure he's thinking about next year being like, who are the free agents available for us? You know, I'm looking at it. I'm seeing guys like Manny Machado or Shohei Atani, And then... The other element about this deal is Correa took a six-year, $200 million deal for an all-star third baseman, one of the top infielders in the league. For him to take a six-year, $200 million deal and no one else to try to get him, the Dodgers didn't try, the Red Sox didn't try, the Yankees didn't try, the Astros didn't try to bring him back. The fact that the Twins were the only team to give him that deal tells me there is something very wrong with that dude's leg. And... The Twins are in a position where it's really hard for them to attract free agents, and so they're going to have to take risks, and they're going to have to try things to to bring guys onto their team. But obviously Steve Cohen felt that this roster is deep enough for them not to need to take that risk, and honestly he is. He's right. I mean, Eduardo Escobar had a really good second half of the season last year, and he'll slot in nicely at third base, and 
you know, their second best prospect, Brett Beatty, while he didn't show a ton of promise last year, is a third baseman. And, you know, he's going to be the guy that I expect to slot in there eventually. So all in all, I was bummed about Correa. It's definitely a tough situation, but, you know, it is what it is. And I'm pretty confident that Uncle Stevie will find us someone better. So with that, I know we're starting to run out of time here. So let's get into one more voicemail and then I'll wrap it up for the weekend. All right, let's go to Tommy. Tommy, what do you got, man? Tommy Doucette calling in for me Upper East Side. First time, future long time. Big Yankees fan here. Wanted to talk about playing in New York. Joey Gallo said before he got traded last year that he lost all of his confidence. He couldn't go out in the streets of New York because he was afraid. Uh, he really hit rock bottom in his career and looked like a completely different player than in Texas. You know, the Yankees players complained about booze last year when they lost to the Astros. So my question is, is it truly harder for an athlete to play in the entertainment capital of the world? You know, New York sports haven't won much in the last couple of decades besides the Yankees in 09 and a couple of giant Super Bowls. So I wanted to see what you thought. I'll hang up and listen. Playing in New York. Yeah, I think it's a great question. And I actually think this is a great question, Tommy, to end the episode on. So... I do agree that the pressure and playing in New York is truly is truly challenging. Um, I think we've seen it with a lot of different athletes. You know, I think about who are the best athletes that have handled the New York City pressure in our lifetime. You know, I think Jalen Brunson's at the top of that list right now in current players. Um, the dude has come in. He is averaging, what's he averaging now? I think it's 25 points a night. Last or The other night he scored 44 points against the Bucks. He's handled the media really, really well, and he's brought sort of that Villanova attitude to the city, and he's handled it perfectly. Other athletes that come to mind for me, Tommy, are uh, I think Saquon Barkley's handled New York City beautifully. I actually think the, one of the best is Giancarlo Stanton. Um, Stanton's had a really up-and-down tenure here with the Yankees, and he's done a phenomenal job of, of handling the pressure and handling the media through his injuries, through his slumps. Um, I think Artemi Pernarin on the, on the uh, Rangers has done a fantastic job and has been that superstar they need, but has also been able to handle a lot of the adversity and the critics that come at him. And then kind of looking further back, right? I mean, you know, Derek Jeter sort of told us, right, you know, New York City is the best place to, to win, right? There's nothing like winning in the city of New York. And so, you know, when I think about, like, what are the key things that it, it takes for a New York athlete to be successful here, it, it comes down to three things. Um, you know, one, you need to have tough skin, obviously you need to be all okay and embrace the ups and downs and be okay with the media and be okay with the tabloids coming at you and be okay with idiots like me on his podcast saying they stink. So that's number one. Um, number two, you need accountability. Um, I think the players who are most successful here own up to their mistakes, own up to their issues, right? Aren't the ones who run away from things like a Javi Baez, for example, or a Joey Gallo. And then three is, I think you just need to look at it like an opportunity. I think the guys who are really successful here, I think the reason Jalen Brunson is having such a good start to his Knicks tenure is he understands that if he's able to bring this Knicks team to a, uh, to a championship for the first time in 50 years, you know, he's going to be looked at differently. And I think that's the same reason all these guys are successful here. And I think it's the same reason that a lot of past NY athletes aren't is because they're more afraid of the media and they're not thinking about the opportunity. So with that, that's all I got this week, folks. I, I'm going to try to avoid being the podcast that's like two hours long because I have the attention span of like 30 to 45 minutes. So I'm assuming you do too. I hope everyone has an amazing Friday. I hope you all have a great weekend. I hope on Sunday the Giants kick some ass. For those who want to hang out with me, I will be at Monk McGinn's in Tribeca on the second floor. 
look for me there. Um, for those who don't have uh, work on Monday, enjoy your long weekend. And next week we will be back. I'm sure we'll be taking some more voicemails. Feel free to use that link in my bio. Um, tweet at me at NY Sportsman. And I look forward to chatting with you guys next Friday. See ya.